from Spotify, this is The Window. I'm your host, Xavier Jernigan. This show began as a way to hear first-person stories of life during the coronavirus pandemic, to understand what others are coping with, and to remind us that we're not alone. A few months in, this pandemic has been eye-opening in a lot of ways. My particular revelation took me by surprise. Living in a state of quarantine is the safest I've ever felt in my adult life. Not having to go outside every single day to deal with the potential dangers that await me is the safest I've ever felt as a Black man living in this country. By the time I was 22, I'd been stopped by the police 20 times. After that, I stopped counting. Several years ago, I spent the night in Brooklyn Central booking simply because of driving while Black. I was snatched off the street. No one knew where I was for a whole day. And it hit me how easy it was for my life to be completely disrupted. So when I saw the video of George Floyd, the black man killed by police in Minneapolis on May 25th, it really affected me. That could have been me. That could be me. George Floyd's death helped to spark this current wave of protests against police brutality and racial injustice in America. It's big. All 50 states. And something about this time feels different. Black people are sharing stories they've never shared before. So over the next few episodes of The Window, we're going to hear stories from people who are using their words to show the reality of being Black in America. This week at Spotify, I asked a few of our Black colleagues to share some of their experiences. They wrote testimonials and shared over video with their coworkers, myself included. I was so moved by their words that I asked if we could share a few of them with you. They generously obliged. So we're breaking format a little bit to bring you these truths. First up, Michael Polidor, a post-production coordinator for Spotify, speaking from his home in Burbank, California. Lately, I've been turning over in my mind all of the recent and not-so-recent events that led us to this very moment. But of course, as Black Americans, this isn't the first time we've had to reevaluate our relationship with America, our fellow Americans, and its law enforcement. At this point, it's becoming an annual or semi-annual event. I was 16 or 17 at the time with a brand new learner's permit. All I wanted to do was to drive my mom's old Jaguar to an SAT prep class. She told me it wasn't a good idea, but I was young and I wouldn't listen. It was nighttime when the class got out, so I drove home slowly. I hadn't made it too far out the parking lot before I got pulled over. 
the officer came up and told me he stopped me because I was driving too carefully. Hmm. After I handed him my license and registration, he proceeded to ask me if this was my car. I quickly responded yes, but then he asked me again. So again, I answered yes. Finally, he said, son, I'm going to ask you one more time and I need you to be honest with me. Is this your car? At this point, I began to think to myself, was this my car? Do I need to tell him that it's my mom's car? I mean, what's the right answer to this question? Because I need to pass this test. I hesitantly replied, yes. After running my information, he said I was free to go, but then he proceeded to follow me all the way home. I was so frightened that when I turned to make a right onto my street, I ran up on the curb. As I think over my own personal experiences and the experiences of others who look like me, four words come to mind. No room for error. My mom is an immigrant from Trinidad, a small island in the Caribbean. She came to America at 24 with ambitions of becoming a doctor, and she did. She achieved the American dream of escaping crippling poverty, but it wasn't easy, nor did she expect it to be. However, it wasn't just the pressure of medical exams that made it hard to become a doctor. She was trying to do so while being black, a female, and an immigrant. She would say to me, you got to work twice as hard as these white folks. And I realized what she was saying is that we both had no room for error. I am one of the few black people in my office, even less in post-production. Coming to my new job was the first time I had ever seen a black head of post in my almost nine-year career. With every new project, the thought runs through my mind, don't mess this up. Now, I know this is not a unique feeling. We all want to do a great job. But my performance anxieties are not just about what people may think about me but what people may think about us. Whatever I do, I need to make the right move because there is no room for error. I remember what it was like as a teenager attending high school in Garden City, New York, a suburb in Long Island, and being one of two black boys in my grade. Eager to attend parties, some even with drugs and alcohol present, my mother knowing this would be quick to remind me, you know, when the cops come, everyone is going home, except you. Again, the message, you black boy have no room for error. One last story. It's my sophomore year in college at Cal State Northridge, and I decided to make the cross-country drive home to New York for the holidays. It was me, my girlfriend, and my manual O2 Honda Civic. My goal was to make it home in four days, which meant driving as long as I could and as fast as I could. 
It was during one of these speed limitless sprints through yet another long stretch of two-lane highway surrounded by cornfield when I was pulled over, ironically near Garden City, Kansas. I knew I was wrong and I prepared to simply get a ticket. But what actually transpired caught me and my companion by complete surprise. It was night when the officer and his partner both approached my car and began to shine their lights into our eyes in the back seat. He asked me to step out the car, and I did, leaving my girlfriend to wonder what's next. He then asked me if he had permission to search my car and trunk, and again, just as before, I found myself frightened and unsure what the right answer should be on this lonely road in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. So I said yes. At once, his partner brought out a German shepherd to assist in the search for whatever police dogs are trained to search for. The officer then requested me to come back to his car so he could ask me a couple more questions while the search continued. I sat there in the front seat of that squad car, back to the door, sweat pouring down my face as we chatted about everything from where I was coming from, where I was going, to what I majored in at school, as if to catch me in a lie. The search came to an end, nothing was found, and the officer told me I was free to go. I can't actually remember if I ended up getting that ticket or not. I do, however, remember the sense of relief knowing I was walking away with my life. Amadou Diallo, Tamir Rice, Botham John, Brianna Taylor, Tatiana Jefferson. The list goes on. In each case, although victims, some foul or foreboding detail would be released to suggest that these weren't perfect people either. That somehow black life was headed towards some tragic end anyway. I think about my own story and how my interactions with law enforcement could have ended in deadly force. Or what mistakes that I've made that could be brought to light to paint a picture that my untimely end was justified, or even worse, too early to tell. The message to black people in this country, however coded, is clear. That for our lives to matter, we have no room for error. Michael Polidor, from his home in Burbank, California. Next up is my colleague, Larissa Lamoth. She's based in New York City and works at Spotify as an event production engineer. This week, myself and a few other black colleagues had the opportunity to briefly share our experiences in dealing with racism and injustice with the whole entire company. Uh, A little background about myself, I am from New York, but at the age of 11, uh, my family moved to North Carolina, and at the age of 17, I moved back to New York for college 
moving to North Carolina was a huge culture shock. It was my first time dealing with racism, uh, being treated differently for the cover of my skin. I played sports, and the constant theme throughout my childhood was that we accept you as an athlete, and you're welcome to play sports, but your culture and what we think you represent is not necessarily welcome in our place. Growing up and seeing racial slurs on cars and coming to school where the students wear Confederate flag clothing apparel to where you are going to work, going to shop, and you're being followed just because uh, you seem threatening was really something hard to deal with at a very, very young age. Moving back to New York, where you would think in the North you escape some of the things that you experienced down South, um, it just was proving itself false. Um, For the first time living in New York or moving back, I experienced something kind of traumatic. Uh, one night I was walking to go get some food and this was in Long Island, New York, where I was by myself around eight o'clock at night and had a car of four white young men pull up on the side of me, start shouting out racial slurs, everything from the N-word to other things that just shouldn't be said. Uh, it was very, very frightening. Uh, in that moment, you don't know what to do. You kind of stand still and quickly have to think about your next actions uh, because you don't know what can happen next. Uh, to think, well, if I shout back at them, would I be physically attacked? If I run, would they follow me? Um, and it's, it's very, very traumatic, and it kind of altered the way I kind of live my life. Even now during this COVID uh, and pandemic situation, it's always in the back of your head of, if I go outside, uh, will I be verbally attacked? Will I be physically attacked? Living in a nice neighborhood, which I have the opportunity to live in, you know, a wonderful neighborhood, it's always that subconscious of, what should I wear? Should I go push the trash out at night? Should I wait, you know, until the morning where there's sunlight? Uh, if it's raining, do I walk outside with a hood on my head? You know, do I uh, not wear a hoodie? Do I go to the store? You know, we have to wear a mask. What mask do I wear? Do I wear a medical mask? You know, or do I wear the ones that I made, you know, at home? Um, because it's always that fear of, like, how does my appearance be viewed as? Would I be viewed as a threatening individual? Uh, or, you know, where I just be seen as a regular person? Things like that where I think a lot of white people are privileged to not have to think about and they may so take in for granted that as a young African-American woman, um, even just a black individual, it's something that we constantly have to think about. Um, what is a privilege to others when it's 
what is success to others often sometimes is a burden to us to have to double think of, you know, the car drive, would would I be stopped just because I'm seen driving or, you know, the neighborhood that I live in, would I be stopped in my neighborhood just because it seems that I'm not supposed to be living here or welcomed here. And to the point where it's, you don't know how to live anymore. You don't know what to do. You know, you work in a space in a wonderful company where you are allowed to be your unapologetic self, but you live in a society where you're not welcomed. You can't be yourself because um, any, you know, anything, any parts of your culture can seem threatening and problematic. And, um, those are just one of many experiences that I've had in this lifetime. And, you know, outside, when I leave work, I'm not that wonderful colleague that everybody loves. I'm just another Black person. And my Blackness can seem threatening. Larissa Lamoth, from her home in New York City. Sometimes it can feel like all the stories of Black people dying at the hands of police can make us numb. I know it makes me numb sometimes. I can't even watch all the videos because it's hard to stomach. Our hope here is the stories that we share can make us all feel more alive, more connected, more motivated to do something about it. On the next episode of The Window, Tamika D. Mallory and Trey The Truth on what this moment means to them. This was a crucial moment in history for us, man. Hopefully, at the end of it, I could say this was a turning point for us. I have no choice but to fight because my life and my son's life literally depends on it. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. You can listen to The Window on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is dedicated to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. Say their names. I'm Xavier Jernigan. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.